From PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom, in for Steve Kerwood. As wildfires out west increase with climate change, more women are on the fire lines, facing hazards and harassment as they work in what's still mostly a man's world. I dealt with things like corn being taped in my buggy seat. The person that sat behind me used to flick his ashes into my hair. I'd have rocks rolled from the top of a hill down towards me. I was so in love with the job, and just that first year, my goal was to never, ever let them make me cry, and I never did. Also, a last-ditch effort to save baby tropical fish adrift in chilly New England waters. These fish are going to they're, they're gonna die because of the water turning cooler as the fall and winter comes. So um, you're rescuing them from a certain death to a possible survival. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI in the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom, in for Steve Kerwin. The North Atlantic Ocean Conveyor Belt, better known as the Gulf Stream, carries heat from the tropics along the U.S. East Coast and then over to Northern Europe. In the summer, it also carries game fish like tuna and bonito as far north as New England. These big fish scoop back south as winter arrives, but tiny tropical fish larvae, babies that were also caught up in the Gulf Stream, lack the fins and strength to make it back to warmer waters, and they typically perish. Unless, and it's a big unless, they wash close to shore and are rescued by volunteers and scientists. Noble Ingram has our story. It's a warm September Saturday and a crowd has gathered on a rocky cove at Fort Wetherill Park in Jamestown, Rhode Island. The beach is peppered with plastic tubs and clipboards. A team of scientists and volunteers is pulling a massive net called a seine net full of flopping silver fish through the shallows. But these are not the fish they're looking for. Along the shoreline, four divers waddle slowly into the water. Each carries a Tupperware container and what looks like a small butterfly net. The water is clear and the sun is shining, but this is no ordinary fishing trip. This is a rescue mission. These fish are gonna, they're, they're gonna die because of the water turning cooler as the fall and winter comes. So, um, hey, might as well take the opportunity to rescue them. That's Leonore Damaris. She's a longtime scuba diving enthusiast and a member of the New England Aquarium Dive Club, a volunteer organization that often partners with the aquarium. As she explains, the group has come to Rhode Island in search of an unusual kind of fish that desperately needs saving. It is a hunt because you're hunting for them. You're just not killing them when you find them deliberately, right? You're, you're rescuing them from a certain death to a, to a possible, possible survival. These threatened sea creatures aren't native but they're not invasive either. They've been spotted all throughout New England, and just over 100 miles away, on Nantucket Island, the Mariah Mitchell Aquarium has a small collection of them. On a July afternoon, a staff intern named Jack leads a tour into a room of bubbling fish tanks. Most of the animals here are locals, including the aquarium's beloved Atlantic lobster, Clementine. But two tanks hold flashier foreigners. 
Our first uh, tropical stray that we have here is our buffalo trunkfish. It was collected two years ago in Madigate Harbor, and what we suspect is these fish they spawn somewhere in the Caribbean or you know somewhere subtropical like off the Carolinas. And as juveniles, when they were really weak, they got caught in the Gulf Stream, which is a big current that makes its way up the U.S. Eastern Seaboard. And there's a little spigot of it that comes out towards Massachusetts here. As Jack explains. This tropical fish was found here in New England after riding ocean currents for hundreds of miles. Now three years old, this blue blob is about the size of an apple, with a face that's strangely reminiscent of an Easter Island stonehead. It's known as a Gulf Stream orphan. As a little baby, you know this buffalo trunkfish was the size of a blueberry when we caught it. As Jack points out, the fish has grown fast, and now it's attracting some serious attention from visitors. He's got a lot of personality. Yeah. Hi. Oh, you're very handsome. Hi. I think you're my friend. I wouldn't mind finding one of you. He kind of looks like a truck of some kind, or like a weird UFO. <laughs> he loves eating live shrimp. And so we lie. <laughs> the buffalo trunkfish is not the only tropical species to be carried into New England. Others include bright yellow spotfin butterfly fish and Atlantic blue tangs, relatives of the Pacific fish featured in the Finding Nemo and Finding Dory films. After the tour, Jack steps outside onto the beach. What's the best thing you've caught? Um, personally, ever um, a flying gnard was a really rare tropical that we caught uh, five years ago. It's this beautiful fish with bright iridescent blue wings, usually only found in the Caribbean. We had it at the aquarium for four years and it got so big we donated it to the New England Aquarium, I believe. As an adult, the flying gnard looks like a glowing purple frisbee. And biologists at the New England Aquarium were thrilled to receive it. One in particular, Mike O'Neill, manages the giant ocean tank there and is completing a PhD studying Gulf Stream orphans. So uh, we met the Mariah Mitchell Association um, at the Hyannis Ferry and received this flying gnard from their facility. And they had him set up in a nice temperature-controlled cooler, um, very well packed. Raising a captured tropical orphan is no simple task. Five years in, that flying gnard died from a bad eye infection. But plenty of other orphans at the aquarium have survived and thrived. And for Mike, gazing into the New England Aquarium's vast Caribbean collection, saving these fish from a deadly fate drives his studies. We went down for one of the field collecting trips, and I could not believe that the fish that we were going to be bringing back we would find normally in the Caribbean. And one of the first fish that we found was the permit. When we found it, a very small, plain silver fish. Mike nods at the tank and points to a glistening fish the size of a bicycle but it's actually one of the two largest fish in our giant ocean tank right here. They get to be maybe 100 pounds or so and a couple feet long. It was like an out-of-body experience at first being like, we could raise this up and bring it back to the aquarium and it could live in the giant ocean tank for a decade or more and be this, this massive animal. As Mike explains, even the mighty permit was found as a tiny gray speckle. That might be the biggest challenge to finding orphans. Unlike the colorful adults we recognize, Juvenile tropical fish look mostly like seafloor pebbles. That brown blob is a trunkfish. So you can see his little mouth and his two eyes there. So when we collect them, they're teeny tiny. Then they get about football size when they're full grown. That looks like a rock. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so that's one of the ones that when you come across, it's usually like just sheer luck that 
you happen to be standing in the right spot, and then as you're looking through it, instead of looking at pebbles, you're like, oh, wait, this one actually has fins, and he's alive. That luck is critical, and not just for the rescuers. As Leonore mentioned earlier, Gulf Stream orphans can tolerate New England's warm summers, but when water temperatures plummet in the fall, fish that can't stand the cold die. And that brings us back to Jamestown in September. Mike O'Neill is here, along with his colleague, Mike White. The pressure is on to find these orphans, White says. They're going to die. It's, it's inevitable. They will die with probably within the next month. So if we can get it and bring it back and use it in our exhibits, it sends a big message out. So uh, it's very important. But so far, this year's haul isn't looking promising. Three hours in, a few divers have made sightings, but every net is still empty. One of the divers who's with the aquarium saw spot fin, but didn't have any luck in catching him. Nothing in the nets yet, but uh, we're going to try the seining and see what, uh, what we come up with there. Each time the seine net comes in, Mike and the dive club find a new tangle of fish, but they're all locals. We don't have anything tropical in this guy. Then, amid the controlled chaos of another hall, a pair of divers head over to Mike with a gallon-sized plastic tub. Mike points to a brown spot swimming in their catch. That little dark guy with the red eye is a permit. Permit. Oh my God, little baby permit. You kidding me? Like that dark, huh? Yep. That's stress coloration. He's he's figuring out why everyone's looking at him. Potentially a successfully caught Gulfstream orphan? Yep, that permit is definitely on the Gulfstream orphan list. Definitely at that size. That guy's maybe maybe half an inch long, something like that. They'll grow up to be very, very large. Mike hands the tub and its future 50-pound fish back to the divers. The proud rescuer poses for a photo with the permit. For now, the dive club will have to be content with their single rescued orphan. Fish-wise... A little bit left to be desired. Um, we did get a few reports of tropical fish, and we have one permit in hand. So from a New England aquarium perspective, not ideal for the collection animals, but for the Gulfstream Orphan Project, definitely excellent data. Weather turned out great. Dive conditions were perfect, so can't ask for much more. They overall still definitely worth it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Particularly to see future marine biologists in training out here and getting wet and learning about their native environment. It's the way to go. Every fall, the New England Aquarium Dive Club's event gives citizen scientists of all ages the chance to save just a few tropical fish caught in the region's cooling waters. Thanks to this year's outing, more people are now enlisted orphan rescuers. And one tiny permit here gets to make it past October. For that, at least, it seems safe to call it. Mission accomplished. For Living on Earth, I'm Noble Ingram in Jamestown, Rhode Island. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom. 2018 has been a devastating year for wildfires in the West, 
and the Mendocino Complex fire north of San Francisco was the largest in state history. Tens of thousands of wildland firefighters have battled these blazes in the tinder dry west. It's dangerous work. Several firefighters have died in wildfires this year. And in addition to the physical risks, some face other hazards too. And the U.S. Forest Service, which is increasingly consumed by the task of fighting fires, women are speaking out about sexual harassment they've experienced at the hands of their colleagues and supervisors. Today we bring you the story of one of those women. Abby Bolt is a battalion chief in the firefighting division based at Sequoia National Forest. She spoke with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood. So first, tell me about your job. I understand that you've been with the Forest Service for a number of years. Yeah, I cannot believe that I'm into my 21st year of fighting fire. I just started doing it to put myself through college and do it in the summers. And then next thing you know, I became what they call a lifer and took the full-time job. And and, uh, now it's it's been over 20 years. I started off with um, hot shots and was a helicopter repeller and then went into hand crews and engines. And now I actually specialize in fire prevention and public education. Hot shots. I mean, helicopter repelling sounds like either jumping out of planes or <laughs> climbing out of aircraft right into places that are on fire. Why do you do that? Why do you want to do that? Oh, those were the highlights of my career. Why do I want to do it? I mean, I grew up in the outdoors. You know, I love to play sports. I love to be athletic and, and competitive. And, you know, it's hard to be on a professional ball team. So the next best thing was being on a team to fight fire. And there was just so much satisfaction to it that it's it's addicting. You know, even the worst days, the most miserable days where you're just trudging along in the ash, just doing the same menial work, looking for little hot rocks all day long. Even those days are are really memorable and great. What kinds of behavior have you noticed over the 22 or so years that you've been uh, working with the U.S. Forest Service? There's great camaraderie. There's really great teamwork and there's there's really great friendships. And but then along with that can come the hazing and some of that behavior that probably isn't acceptable, but when you're brand new, you don't really realize it. So, you know, in my first years I dealt with, I dealt with things like Corn being taped to my buggy seat. The person that sat behind me used to flick his ashes into my hair, and I didn't know it until I it was melting my hair, and, and people told me about it. But that would happen days on end, and you know, you might pick up your backpack and it's full of rocks, or might be a dead animal in it, or there might be you know something silly. And I don't know if that you know. I think it just has to do with being the odd man out. You know, you're the new person. I was the first girl on a crew who hadn't had a woman in a long time, and they didn't really know any better, I think. And, and, uh, I just wanted to be there. I was so in love with the job and just that first year, my goal was to never, ever let them make me cry. And I never did. So that kind of thing, you'd open up your pack, toss the things out, keep moving. So in that first year, did you say anything to your supervisors or, or anybody about the, uh, harassment, uh, you know, porn being left on your truck seat isn't exactly ordinary hazing. I, I did, and because I didn't want to be the, the only girl they'd had in a long time and then instantly be a problem. So I tried to diffuse a lot of it on my own and blow a lot of it off. And then there was one particular guy that just would not stop. He wouldn't stop picking at me. And I remember it would make me so angry. He would either, you know, physically shove me or touch me or, you know, throw things at me or basically dump all of his work onto me. You know, he would drop things at my feet that he was supposed to be carrying, just little silly schoolyard things. And I just got so frustrated. And I that and all of the other stuff happening on the side 
I finally went to my supervisor at that time and just said, Hey, I need your help. Can you just help me deal with this guy? You know, I wasn't complaining. I wasn't, I just said, I need you to deal with him for me. And he just simply said, Hey, Abby, you're on your own. And I said, well, on my own, I'm, I'm getting so frustrated. I'm going to end up smacking this guy with my tool at some point to get him to back off. And he said, well, you do what you need to do. And that day kind of came. There was a day where I finally, he did something to me out in the middle of a fire. And I remember I was so mad and couldn't get him to back off. And I did smack him with my tool to get him to back off. And, you know, that's just kind of it. You take care of yourself. And that's, that's what I was told. And towards the end of the season, when we were doing our exit interviews, I told other supervisors on the crew, I said, Hey, just, just know that this was going on and that I'm not going to complain because I love this job, but I just want you guys to know so that you watch out for it in the future. And I would like to, to think that they took that forward and, and, uh, did something good with it, but I was actually pretty much blackballed for a long time because I said that. Hmm. And their solution was violence. Hey, these guys are hassling you, then do whatever you need to do to take them out. Almost an explicit order to you to do something physical. Right. And it was. And at that point in my life, I mean, I didn't even know about things like EEO or formal reports. And I don't think I ever even would have filed one at that point. And what ended up happening is the guys that were on the crew that believed in me, they rallied around me like brothers and ended up sticking up for me. And they they handled that guy in the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they did. But you were blackballed. Yeah. And what I did was. that mean? Um, I didn't realize how bad it was until, because I performed well and I did a good job and I, I went on to do great things and continued, you know, there. And then I went and became a repeller. But one of the supervisors, the one that I asked for help and t- told me to deal with it on my own. Years later, I actually got a job offer somewhere on another hotshot crew. And he went out of his way to make a phone call to tell them that they shouldn't hire me. And he had no reason to do that. No reason at all, except for I did stand up and say, hey, you guys could have some problems with women on this crew if you're not careful. I just gave him a fair warning. And years later, he made sure to to ruin a job for me. So they didn't hire you on that crew? It was even after they had made the official offer. And then they rescinded it after he reached out. That's a piece of that good old boy stuff that that goes on and it can follow you in fire and, and, and burn you for the rest of your career. And that's why people stay quiet. So talk to me about what happened to you back in 2012. You, you went on assignment in Colorado. Yeah, I was on, it was actually Wyoming and Colorado. And um, I was with an incident management team and we were traveling around the country, um, had a few fires that we were dealing with. And one was in Wyoming. And then also we were partly in Colorado and towards the end of the assignment, I was, sexually assaulted and, um, raped by another firefighter that wasn't a member of our team, but he was there working with them. And, uh, it was a violent situation by somebody that I was an acquaintance with. And I never understood like how that could happen or, you know, what you do in that situation. And I just, I remember negotiating with him and pleading with him and long story short, I was covered in bruises and, um, yeah. So, uh, I'm so sorry. It's just, yeah, it's just so horrible. It's, it's just one of those situations you find yourself in and you just, you, it's surreal. Like you, it's not happening to you. You're just watching a TV show in your head. That must be all that it is. And the next day it was time for me to drive home back to California. And I, I just, I was in shock, literally in shock and shame and, 
I didn't know what to do. Like I, I knew that it was wrong and I knew that I needed to do something about it and report it. But then all the thoughts in your mind of what's going to happen to you in the agency and in the fire service, what will rip your career apart. You know, when I show up to a fire, I show up and people look at me and go, there's Abby. That's that division supervisor we had on that fire where we saved all those homes. You know, and after you report something like this, you show up to a fire and now there's Abby. She's that gal that was in that rape trial that ruined that firefighter's life. You know, it becomes your identity. We had a team of like 56 people there. And once, once I reported it, an investigation would have shot through the roof. Everybody, that whole team would have been stood down for fire assignments and they would have been questioned and it would have brought so much darkness to so many good people. I didn't want everybody else to have to pay for what I went through. Um, so on my way home, I driving back to California, my, my best friend ever since we were little is with the police department here. And I reached out to her just in tears and I told her I didn't know what to do. And of course she was pleading with me to, to report it and told me that I had to. And I explained to her all the reasons and she knows how it works in her department, what it would feel like for her. And, you know, because imagine the investigation, it's not just a police investigation. We're talking federal, all the agencies, it would have been a mess in different States. And I've seen how our agency doesn't do very well on things that are much less than that. How would they have treated that? How would they have treated me? How could I have trusted them? So I told her and she, she convinced me to come down and at least do the police report. And I met with the SVU detective and we went through all of it. And I went to the hospital and I did the rape kit to make sure that all the evidence was captured. But I just, I, uh, I couldn't bring myself to actually tell the agency because I just, I knew it would ruin everything and it would be easier if I could, if I just kept moving forward. So you filed, so you, you got the rape kit from the local police department where you were assaulted or back home or? Actually back home where I live. And they ended up working with the police department um, where I was assaulted. And both of those detectives kept following up with me and they were pleading with me to press charges. And um, I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it. It was the middle of the fire season. I was still traveling around fighting fire and I just I want to be known in the agency for my firefighting abilities, not for that. Of course, now all that's changed, but you know, they kept telling me like, you've got to do something or this will happen again, or maybe he's doing this to other women or, you know, and I was thinking about his family and his children that I knew that he had, and I didn't want to ruin anybody else's life. And, but I, instead of confiding and letting the police protect me or going through the judicial system, which I just didn't trust at the time. I confided in a, in a friend on a hotshot crew that I was really good friends with. And I knew that he knew my assaulter or I knew that he knew who he was because they both lived in Arizona. He told me, Abby, don't worry, we will watch out for you and you give us the word and we will take care of him and we will keep him away from you. You know, it was, it's a bunch of brothers in this job. It's a bunch of big brothers that are just amazing. And like their little sister, they made sure that I was protected and we would go to fires. And if he would be around, they would, they would eat their meals with me. They would just keep an eye on me. And they, they did put him in check a couple of times and had to pull him aside. And yeah, so they were my justice and it ended up being kind of a brotherly justice that I had. And it felt like at least that was something that I did have to protect myself and to let that man know that it was known about and he was put in check. But then in 2013, um, that friend of mine and his entire crew except for one of them, uh, they all died in a fire. And They all died in a fire. Yeah. So they all died in a fire in 2013. And I think I was just devastated from that already. But then that was, that was my, my justice. I also lost my justice and my answer to 
to how I responded to the assault. So I, that tore me up pretty bad. Yeah, one of the things that's so awful about sexual assault is obviously how people, what happens to your life afterwards. How are you doing in the aftermath of this? This is just uh, such a devastating thing. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out, actually. I'm still trying to figure that out. And I think I buried a lot of it. You know, it's it's come, and this is all really definitely pulling it forward. I didn't tell my family. I told, you know, I was married at the time and he knew and, you know, we, he helped me through it and that it was really hard on us. And, uh, but I didn't tell my mom and my dad because one, I was afraid my dad might just lose it and go out and take care of his daughter. And, uh, but I just, I didn't want that weighing on their hearts. You know, I just, so I kept it inside and just worked with the police and then worked with, with those friends of mine that were watching out for me and, I've buried it, and it's definitely affected me, though. The fact that it all happened isn't what gets me so much right now and why I've come forward about it. The fact that that I knew that I wouldn't be able to trust in the agency to take care of me if I reported it. Talk to me about the kinds of bullying that you've experienced since that incident. Um, the bullying that I've dealt with since then it wasn't um, didn't have anything to do with that incident because I hid that from you know my agency in general. So since then, it's been like ever since that I've, I would speak up for either myself or for other employees that weren't being treated well, I've just been completely burned for that. But it all seemed to happen when I went under the supervision of a particular supervisor because, you know, for 18 years before that, maybe I'd worked for somebody difficult, but I never had these problems. You know, and I'm dealing all with all of it in a complaint now. And I've tried, the thing that kills me is I tried from the lowest level because that's how we're taught. Try to fix things at the lowest level. If that doesn't work, go to the next level and then the next level. And I just was banging my head against the wall with the lowest level, trying and trying and trying. Then the next level. But what happens is you you bring something to the attention of your supervisor. And if his supervisor wants to protect him, he absolutely will. I would speak out about something that was so blatant, but then it was almost like his supervisor didn't want that sort of a thing to come out and they start covering up for each other because then if the word gets out that there is a hostile work environment or some sort of poor treatment happening on their unit, that's going to get out further and further and that's not going to look good. So I think that motivates them to cover up for each other. And then they start making the person that is making a complaint look like the problem because it's a lot easier if you get rid of that problem than if you admit that there's actually a problem on your unit or a problem with one of your leaders. What kind of litigation, if any, are you engaged in now against the department, given this devastating history? Well, I, you know, it's been 2014. I finally had to step forward and file a complaint, and that fire season kind of ate that up. Um, there's really no employee advocates out there that are truly on the employee side. So it's really tough when you file a complaint to know what your deadlines are and really understand all of that and have an advocate because you also are expected to do your regular job. There's a lot of time that has to be spent on that. But if you're the agency that you're filing the complaint against, they have endless resources to help them. So that, you know, that moved on and I basically just had to let things go because I needed to to get on with the season and being a supervisor. But then the retaliation started. There were a lot of opportunities taken away. I used to teach at academies and I'm talking about big fire academies that were very respected they wouldn't let me teach anymore. I was on committees. They took me off of all the the committees that I was on. Just a lot of opportunities that are critical for your career and your advancement and your networking, they were just slowly taking all of those away. 
they made me move my office miles away from where it was, just me, but not the other male that worked there that was in the same position. So then I, I uh, made the phone call and started the retaliation complaint. So that was in 2015. And then one thing after another, where they're just not being responded to, you know, I'd reach out to our civil rights folks and tell them literally what was happening in my office. And I would literally write emails that said, please help me, you know, as blatant as I could so that they would maybe read them and say, maybe we should check in on her, see what's going on. And they would get ignored for a, for a long time. Outside of official actions that feel like retaliation, to what extent have you felt threatened, intimidated by things that you're not sure of the source of, but nonetheless feel, well, frankly, downright creepy? That's what's starting to eat me up. And, you know, the supervisor that I was working for and he's moved on, he would make very odd comments and it got, it was getting creepy. And then it was actually just a one sentence note that was typed up and addressed to me in my inbox and said that, that I was a prime example of why women didn't belong in fire, especially single mothers. And then my, the back of my car window was written in just the word quit. And I had heard that one of my supervisors had been saying that, and he had also said it to me in passing. So it just makes you not even want to enter the building. And I, I go to bully meetings at my child's school, bullying prevention meetings, and we're talking about how to keep kids safe on the playground and in the classroom. And I sat there one day and realized like, oh my gosh, this is verbatim what's happening in my workspace. You know, it's, the, it's schoolyard bullying at an adult level. Firefighting is a dangerous business, and I'm sure you've been in many situations where you really needed to make sure that the people you were with were going to literally have your back. To what extent did you feel that the harassers, the bulliers, didn't in those circumstances? There was there was a time in the very beginning where that had happened a few times. There was, you know, I'd had fire literally lit underneath me um, just because they thought it would be funny, and they left me there. Um, I'd have rocks rolled from the top of a hill down towards me, which have killed people. You know, there was that kind of thing. So yeah, you kind of lose that sense of safety because if they're not going to be good to you in the buggy, they're not going to be good to you out on the fire line. Now that I'm further in my career and I'm in more of a leadership position, and I even told our forest supervisor this in writing and in person several times about the hostile work environment and the hazardous human behavior that was happening underneath him with a couple of our fire leaders. And I told him that eventually this kind of behavior is going to bleed over to a fire. And the behaviors that they're displaying in the office are going to come out on the side of that mountain in the fire because maybe, maybe they don't answer the radio when they should just to be mean, or maybe they don't fill an order when they should, or call that helicopter when they should just because they're retaliating. And eventually it's going to get somebody killed. Abby, what gives you strength to go through this? Uh, what's helping you get through all of this? Well, my family, if I didn't, you're going to make me choke up. <laughs> But if I didn't have my family, I, you know, I've got really strong sisters and my mom for women. And my parents always told me to speak up. If you see something wrong, say something, do something about it. And it's so much easier for me to speak up and protect somebody that isn't me. I'm much more comfortable speaking out for someone else. And it's been really hard for me to speak out for myself and my significant other. He's been amazing. He's also with the agency and, and so supportive. And he admits he had no idea how bad it could be until he saw it from my eyes and saw it from the inside. And if it weren't for these, the folks that love me, I, I don't know what I would do right now. And there's so many gals in fire and just the emails and the phone calls and the messages I've gotten since I came out on PBS 
like there'll be another one that'll come in that will confess to me the pain that she's been in and what she's dealt with. And she's thanking me for speaking out because she can't, because she's scared. And I'll get one of those. And I think now that is the reason I did this. That's the reason I'm speaking out. And then I'll get another one. And I'll think that's the reason. And, you know, quite honestly, there's still, when I go into a classroom to teach about fire prevention, there'll be little girls that walk up to me still. And they say like, I didn't know that girls could do this. And it breaks my heart. I'm like, you guys, it's 2018. What do you mean you didn't know little girls could do this? You can be anything you want to be. And I realized that anything that I do now to help bring progression is going to help some little girl someday that I'm never going to meet. If I lose everything right now, then, but it is going to make things a little bit better Then I'm, I'm good with that because that's how strongly I stand behind this. That's Abby Bolt, a battalion chief for the U.S. Forest Service Firefighting Division. She spoke with Living Honor Steve Kerwood. There's more on this topic on our website, LOE.org. It includes the story of a young woman who thought working for the U.S. Forest Service was just the job that she wanted. I got what I thought was a dream job, fighting wildland fires. You know, I was going to get paid to go hike out to fires and camp, and it was going to be really exciting. But sexual harassment and bullying quickly turned that dream into a nightmare. To hear her story, and for more on the challenges women face protecting public lands, go to our website, LOE.org. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 617-287-4121. That's 617-287-4121. Our email address is comments at LOE.org, comments at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. Coming up, why a treasured icon of Caribbean culture and cuisine is disappearing. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's an encore edition of Living on Earth. I am Bobby Bascom. When most of us picture owls, we see them swooping low on silent wings over fields in search of mice and voles. But as Mary McCann points out in today's bird note, some owls choose a different diet. These distinctive hoots signal the presence of a sumo wrestler of a bird. It's Blackiston's fish owl. Blackiston, because its existence was recorded by the English naturalist Thomas Blackiston, and fish owl because it hunts fish. Standing on the edge of a stream, sometimes in the shallows, it watches intently, eyes fixed on the water. Then with a sudden jump forward, wings upraised, it plunges its talons into a fish and pulls it onto the bank. Sometimes a fish as large as a salmon. This massive bird is the largest owl in the world. Tawny brown, A female Blackiston's fish owl is the larger of the sexes and may stand 28 inches tall, weighing in at over 10 pounds. That's the same weight as a bald eagle. Compared with our largest familiar owl, the great horned, 
The Blackistons is six inches taller and nearly three times as heavy. No other owl approaches its prodigious girth. But the Blackistons fish owl is endangered. It's found only in wooded areas in the east of Japan's second largest island, Hokkaido, and in small areas in adjacent Russia and China. Future preservation of forest and river habitats in these regions will be crucial to the survival of this one-of-a-kind owl. I'm Mary McCann. And for pictures, swoop on over to our website, loe.org. The queen conch is a massive mollusk that grows an impressive and lovely spiral shell with a wide flaring lip and a bright pink interior. Conch are ubiquitous across the Caribbean. The decorative shells are exported and made into jewelry, and the huge gastropod inside is a staple food there. But I discovered new research that suggests the conch is possibly being loved to death. Learning to produce a musical note out of a conch shell is a desirable skill across the Caribbean. In Key West, Florida, known locally as the capital of the conch republic, people come out in droves to compete in the annual conch conch. Children make their best effort. They blow into one end of the huge shell that can weigh up to five pounds. Beautiful, very good, Luna, good job. But a middle-aged man in a bright pink t-shirt knocks it out of the park. This year's Kong Kong, held just last week, even involved a marriage proposal. Mary Lou Smith took her turn on stage wearing a lei and flowered dress. Then a man in a matching lei and flowery shirt got down on one knee with a ring in one hand and a conch shell in the other. We've been together long enough now for me to know that I want you for the rest of my life. She responded appropriately for a conch blowing contest. I think that was a yes. Conch are also a local delicacy. As far as how to prepare it, the list is as long as Bubba's ways to cook shrimp in the movie Forrest Gump. There's cracked conch, conch chowder, conch fritters, conch salad, conch and rice. You get the idea. As beloved as it is, though, the conch fishery in the Florida Keys has actually been closed since 1975. So all of the conch enjoyed in the conch republic has to be imported, mostly from the Bahamas. Alan Stoner, chief scientist with the conservation organization Community Conch, has been conducting surveys of conch populations in the Bahamas for more than 20 years. By 2016, the density of conch was down to only 10% of the original density in very shallow water. Stoner says overfishing is the culprit. Half a million pounds per year are exported and more are consumed locally. To keep up with demand, methods for harvesting conch have become more sophisticated. Historically, fishermen would free dive with a mask and snorkel to scoop them out of the seagrass. But now fishermen use surface-supplied air equipment called hookahs, which allows them to stay underwater longer. When hookah is added to the, the 
the fishing equipment, almost every conch is just available to fishers. Adding to the problem, there's no closed season for conch in the Bahamas, and some conch are legally harvested before they reach sexual maturity, so they never have a chance to reproduce. That's bad news for people who like to eat conch fritters, and worse for marine species that depend on the mollusk for food. There are a whole host of predators that uh, require conch, at least as part of their diet, and that would go right up to sea turtles and things like octopus, which take a, a very large number of conch. The Bahamas has a network of marine protected areas where conch are safe from human harvest. But even there, researchers are finding far fewer conch than they did just a decade or two ago. Stoner says the density of conch is just not high enough for the animals to reproduce. We need about 50 conch per hectare. A hectare is about the size of a soccer field. And if you don't have 50 mature adults in that space, the, uh, the males and the females can't find one another. They're seeing closer to 20 conch per hectare in most areas. Stoner says researchers in the Florida Keys tried to relocate conch to a protected area in order to reach that threshold of 50 adults, but they had mixed results. That works on a fairly small scale, but obviously for the millions of conch that are harvested every year, we really need a large number of eggs being produced. And uh, humans haven't found a good way to do that yet. In the Bahamas, the mollusks are a critical component of not just the local diet, but also the culture, with conch festivals and a conch homecoming each year. The conch sits at the top of the Bahamian coat of arms, and for some islanders, it's simply hard to believe that they're endangered. A local group of musicians, in part of what they call the Conservation Campaign, made an elaborate music video called Conch Gone that offers solutions to saving the threatened animal. My, oh my, my. Left them babies in the why, oh, why, why? Should I them chance to grow up? Should I them chance to multiply? Donor of Community Conch says there are many ways to preserve the conch that remain. Increase the legal size they need to be for harvest, go back to free diving to collect them, and end exports. That last one is a tough sell in a country where conch exports are a multi-million dollar industry. The government has been slow to take action on conservation, but Stoner believes that if locals act now, they could still save the species before all the conch are truly gone. If we don't take heed, if we don't slow down, if we mind our greed, this will be our song. If we don't take heed, so we'll turn around and all the conch gone, all the conch Warm tropical waters off the coast of Africa attract lots of tourists to the small island of Mauritius, where we head now for another installment in the occasional Living on Earth Orion magazine series, The Place Where You Live. Orion invites readers to submit essays to the magazine's website to put the places they care about on the map, and we give them a voice.
It was the search for magic in the mundane that inspired today's essay. When people think of Mauritius, they usually think of the very tropical touristy things like the beaches and the coast. But my town is sort of a post-colonial tropical twist on suburbia, yet it has this gentleness and rather breezy feel to it. My name is Amira Arjani, and this is my essay about Rose Hill Mauritius. The architectural emblem of my mid-sized, mild-weathered town is a municipal hall adjoining an out-of-use theatre from the 1920s. The style of the building harks back to the colonial past, yet it doesn't have the grandeur or aloofness of similar ones in Portress or Kilpip. For Rose Hill has always been, at least in my eyes, an unassumingly bourgeois place, peopled mainly by school teachers and administrators who look at life with kindness and indifference in equal measure. In front of the municipal building is a fountain that's hard to qualify as tasteful or odd. It's in the shape of a statue of three men helping each other up. A noble gesture, yes, but each body is abnormally elongated, each arm a twisting branch. Every Rosehill child has loved climbing up its limbs on Saturday nights, when the sprinklers are off. Her tired parents will sit on a peeling white bench and eat Vuna Corona ice cream cones, grateful for an opportunity to not talk to each other, while the family dog runs through the still wet grass, chasing an invisible frog. At dusk, a drug addict will come squat in their spot, close his eyes, kiss the dark. During the worst years of my adolescence, this town has felt like a tropical private drive Surrey. I decided to ignore the plaza's hall-in old statue, the old cloth shops of Surti merchants, the elegant Catholic churches, the bursting colours of the local market, and see only beige utilitarian buildings. I saw the sidewalks, but not the flower-heavy jacaranda trees lining them. I am now 23, and every day I try to fall back in love. When I came back from a trip to Mumbai, I noticed how pretty and green this town actually is. There's a lingering scent of crushed flamboyant petals, mango leaves, tall ferns, and breeze on every walk to the bus station, Chinese corner store, or municipal library, if you pay enough attention. I try to now, every time I step out of the house. I think the charm in Rose Hill is very much like the charm of a, of a town in a Miyazaki cartoon or the small imaginary town in uh, A Hundred Years of Solitude, a place which looks very neat and small on the surface but has hidden magic. One of the things that create this discrete magic is the combination of the quiet presence of trees and buildings that sort of bear witness to the colonial history and waves of immigration of the country. So you could be walking down a small street and find a beige cement house that would not have any mystery to it if not for the odd wooden veranda still attached to it and the alcove of a Tamil goddess on the other side of the road. Or in the summer, you could be sitting on your balcony and you'd see a row of flame trees over the horizon and there'd be the steeple of a Catholic church rising above the trees and piercing the blue sky. 
And in the town center, you'll also find old Chinese restaurants made of cool stone. And inside, the owner would be serving pork-filled buns alongside Indian sweetmeats. And on the wall would be the Chinese goddess Guanyin alongside the Virgin Mary. So at the same time as you're seeing traces of the different communities that have populated the country, and there's a bit of the sound of the leaves in the breeze in the air, and that's sort of a marriage of the sound and smell of the trees with the cultural richness. And it really sort of reminded me of like how magic realism hides in these in these little things and you have to you have to really look for it to find it. That's Amira Arjani coming to terms with her hometown Rose Hill, Mauritius. You can find pictures and details about Orion Magazine and how to submit your essay if you want to tell us about the place where you live at our website, loe.org. We leave you this week among seabirds. Thousands of leeches' storm petrels circle overhead, swooping and calling into the night. Ling Elliott captured these sounds for his CD he calls Petrol Night. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Thurston Briscoe, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Anna Gibbs, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Maggie O'Brien, Ainsley O'Neill, Sarah Rappaport, Jake Rigo, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at loe.org, and like us please on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. The executive producer of our show, Steve Kerwitt, will be back next week. I'm Bobby Bascom. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRI Public Radio International.